Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein A Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. You are listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in for an hour of science. Got a couple of my favorite buddies in the studio with me. I'm going to attempt to turn on their microphones. It's weird to have them in here with me. Dr. Laura, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. How are you? I'm good. You're looking bright and happy and... Excited to be here. <laughs> yeah, IRL. And Dr. Ailey, first time in the studio in quite a while. Very strange feeling, Dr. Shane. I'm not quite sure what's this very strange feeling. Yeah, I think uh, well, because you were off on mat leave. I was on mat leave just before that. I had one of those pandemic babies, you know, four months old when it started. Are they the same as normal babies? No, well, not really. Maybe a bit more socially (laughs) (laughs) inept. I don't know. No, no. Look, he seems to be fine so far. I think. Yeah, I I had uh, one friend who had a pandemic baby, and when they were talking about it, they said this this kid has only met two people <laughs> yep. and they're one. Yep. And it was like, they, yep. because the exposure was just completely different. You know, they, yep. they weren't um, exposed to humans. Yeah, and, my kid spent yeah. uh, more more of his first year of life in lockdown than out oh, wow. by his first birthday. So that was yeah. pretty intense. But uh, well, look, we got there. He's happy, healthy. So everything's oh, good. good to hear. I remember when, uh, you know, when we were sort of a year in or so, I was giving a talk to a lot of groups called How to Survive a PhD in a Pandemic. And one of the things that I would talk about was, you know, how, you know, people would been doing their PhD for a while, and then all of a sudden the pandemic had hit. Whereas um, I gave this talk just recently again, and it was sort of like, now you all started your PhD during the pandemic for some weird reason. Why would you do that? You yeah. know, like it's totally different. Like, and these students have all started and have spent their entire, you know, PhD years in a pandemic. And in some of their cases, means they've never been to a lab. Yeah. you know, as if it's different. not hard enough. Then you have people who aren't like. You know, getting involved in the fun of it, which is yeah. like talking to people about it locked yeah. at home. And then they get to go to conferences yeah. and things. I mean, you know, look, we're talking about small fries here. There's yeah, like bigger, bigger problems in the world. But it is, it is something that's um, very different for, for a lot of people coming through their science degrees and so forth. And, you know, they'll be, um, they'll be you know, I think one day they'll talk about it. And, they'll be yeah. really hard on their students in the future. They'll oh, be yeah. like, it's hard for you. Yeah. In my day, <laughs> I've been using that line for 20 years. And now I feel a bit guilty. Yeah, no, you can't use that anymore. <laughs> I don't think so. Um, I'm still going to use it. Yeah. Back in my day when we only had Word version 2.0. <laughs> when we used MS-DOS. mouth pipettes. <laughs> whoa, whoa. Sorry, what? <laughs> you just sucked the stuff up. I remember that. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I'm too young for that, admittedly, but I, it has been said to me by supervisors. Oh, that is brilliant. At least you have hand pipettes. <laughs> <laughs> nice. The good old days when you drink stuff. Anyway, yeah, what is what is what is that chemical? Let me sniff it. <laughs> remember that? I remember S- sniffing all sorts still of stuff. Still do that. You still do that? Well, not now, but during my PhD, I certainly did. Yeah. Give it a good sniff, sniff, you could see if it was toxic. I remember my year 11 uh, chemistry teacher, he had this thing where he just loved the, you know, the wave of the hand over the, over oh, the, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and he said, this is one of the most important moves you'll ever move, sort of learn in your life, is not to just shove your nose over the top of this flask, but to wave it towards yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> you can <laughs> smell the pH. You can smell you it, know? yeah. And he was right, he yeah. was right. Yeah, a couple of times I forgot and wasn't good. Anyway, 
let's get into some news. We've got a big uh, show coming up for you folks. Uh, the Day of Immunology is coming up, and uh, Laura's excited because she's... I'm excited. Yeah, you're into that stuff. I'm into that stuff. Uh, every year we have a few guests to celebrate the Day of Immunology coming about, and I guess in the past we'd think, you know, this is something that, you know, only we would do, but immunology is everywhere at the moment. Everyone's talking People about it. People know what it is now. They yeah. know it's not the same as microbiology. It's cool now. We are in vogue. Yeah. I had this discussion with someone the other day where I said, um, we were talking about the word epidemiology. And they said, you know, everyone knows that now. And I said, they know the word, they don't know what the person does. Yeah. yeah. But if you say you're an infectious diseases expert, people know what you do. Yeah. yeah so yeah, there's, yeah. there's still a lot of confusion. It's that thing of common knowledge of a term as opposed to common understanding, not the same thing. So, But I think Very immunology... True. I think people are getting on top yeah. of that. Yeah, it's been everywhere. You Antibodies. People yeah. know what's up. You hope you've got it. <laughs> anyway, uh, some news. Uh, Dr. Laura, what are you yeah, got for us? Yeah, um, huge scientific breakthrough published in um, Nature Communications this week, um, which I really enjoyed reading about. It was from scientists at the Vice Centre in Geneva, where a patient who had completely locked-in syn- locked syndrome yep. was able to communicate via a brain a computer interface and you might have heard about it because the story got a lot of traction because when this patient who could communicate for the first time what he asked for was a beer i and was just about to yeah. say was this the guy that asked for the asked beer? For beer yes and so it got so much traction yeah. in the news but um, how it actually worked was really really interesting so just to get everyone on the same page patients with locked in syndrome this is whereby um, the paralysis there's a state where you really have no means to communicate with the outside world and um, this patient, he had ALS, which everybody may remember from the bucket challenge. This is a really terrible progressive neurogenitive disorder whereby you lose the ability to move, you even lose the ability to move your eyes, and then you eventually move the, lose the ability to speak. Um, you, well, no, sorry, to breathe. That yeah. was the final, yeah. you know, you end up on a ventilator. And so when people have conducted trials to get sort of, you know, movements on a sort of computer they've used eye movements you can twitch in response to certain things but with ALS patients you even lose that so they went one step further in this um, clinical trial they used a 36 year old man and what they did was they gave him um, brain surgery where electrodes were placed into the area of the brain that controls movement and then these electrodes were fed into a connector that was implanted into the skull and then went back into a computer and so whenever there would be an attempt to move there would be an amplified digitized system as sorry signal that would go into the computer whenever you know tried to make a movement now to communicate with the patient um, obviously um, this patient um, has become really visually impaired so they used audio feedback so they would ask certain questions and in response to the questions and this was at a rate of one character per minute so pretty slow but the patient would respond to certain letters and that would be translated into a speller so words could be spelt out hmm. And so this patient who'd been in a locked-in state for several years and had a young son who was four was finally able to communicate for the first times. And the list of what um, he kind of spelled out in response to questions he was asked was he asked for a beer. Again, why the story got so much traction. We love yep. that. He asked for music by his favourite band. He asked to watch um, Disney's Robin Hood with his son. He told his son he was very cool and he asked for a curry. All through the power um, of thought. That's amazing, Which isn't I it? thought was incredible. Yeah, I mean, and this is sort of version 1.0 too. Yeah. Like you would hope it would get to the point where it can be much faster. And But even one character every now and then is something. Yeah, that's um, absolutely amazing. Yeah, I think it's... 
you know, people in that situation, I mean, that is such an awful, awful disease and, you know, so progressive and you know what's coming and being able to communicate post that point was yeah, just extraordinary. And, you know, those responses, I mean, you know, so switched on, you know, still wants a beer and a curry. Yeah, and, yeah, so. and, that's, and that's, the, that's the insightful thing, isn't it? It tells you this person's not gone. Yeah. Um, there's still as much there as, and I think the term locked in syndrome is, is very, very acutely accurate there in that, you know, the person is still there. Um, yeah. They are still engaging with the world as best they can. They just have no means for communication, which is just shocking. So, yeah, great, great stuff. Dr. Haley, what do you got? We're going to move into a story about artificial intelligence and first impressions. First impressions? First impressions. Yeah, first impressions about artificial intelligence. Well, not quite. No, so this is actually using AI to think about first impressions, right? So, you know, when you first meet somebody, you kind yeah. of, you know, if they smile at you, you think, oh, yeah, they're a nice person. Yeah. And everybody has these assumptions. Some of them are really not cool. There's a lot of kind of unconscious bias that a lot of people have. Yeah. Um, but so this was a study that came out of the Stevens uh, Institute for Technology and they uh, – published this in uh, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences just a couple of days ago. And what they did was they basically applied an artificial intelligence model to a whole bunch of people looking at a whole bunch of faces. Now, some of the stuff that they found um, was, well, yeah, the idea of this was to really kind of try to understand you know, people's first impressions, how people make first impressions of people, mm. how people um, interact with you and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so what they did, as I said, they, you know, showed people like I think it was about a thousand pictures and, you know, some of the common stuff came out. So you smile at people, they think you're pretty nice. You wear glasses. Smart. <laughs> exactly. Very smart. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. And so um, those kinds of things obviously yeah. came out. What in, came out for balding? Yeah, don't know that I'm one wasn't curious. explicitly mentioned, but I want to uh, know what that one is. maybe you don't want to know what that what one came is. out for blonde. <laughs> yeah, I don't exactly, exactly. So, so they had a look at all that kind of stuff, but it was really interesting to see because they they also found a few things that they weren't expecting, mm. and um, some of those in terms of um, what they were finding was that people make really snap judgments very quickly, which is probably not unsurprising yeah. to, to everybody. But it was really interesting for them to be able to show that explicitly, that people do make these snap judgments about people. And, I mean, this this was this, – basically this study was done in order to um, actually try and model things better for, for psychological assessments and other kind of scientific studies. But yeah. they ended up finding these interesting findings on the side – and so what they were saying was that this, this technology, they're actually um, – there's a lot of ethical implications for this technology, right? And one of the things that they're doing is actually they've decided they're going to safeguard it because think about things like deep fakes, right? Mm. People can make anybody present the way they should be. So what happens – we've got a political – we've got an election coming up. What happens if you find this study and you go, oh, hang on a second, trustworthiness is related to – a silver tie, um, you know. Um, you know this aspect of of, of likability is related to the shape of someone's face or something. I, I don't know yeah. exactly what it is. They haven't looked at to that in that much detail. But the problem with it is that then we've got Photoshop, we've got you know all these deep fake kind of things. We can start to manipulate people's images from a an unconscious psychological, uh, you know 
framework to try and understand or to try and make someone more electable, for example, more yeah. likable, more. And so that was a really interesting uh, thing that, that, that these people talked about in this study was that, you know, this technology is fantastic, but we do need to be quite careful about how we use it. Yeah, because so, otherwise we'd end up like marketing companies and airbrushing yeah, uh, images exactly. and so forth and misleading people to buy things that they actually don't need. That's exactly Because right. they think if I buy this car, I'll get that lady. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. exactly right. It's subtle, you know. Exactly. And so so the whole study was pretty much, you know, basically trying to understand stereotypes, mm. first impressions and stereotypes. Yeah. And, and, you know, they weren't, they couldn't publish, you know, blonde and bald and everything like that. But the whole idea Damn. is that this, this, this technology can actually be used to, uh, you know, for, for altruistic purposes, for understanding psychology and maybe yeah. removing some of those biases and, and thinking about how we can address some of those biases, but also, um, yeah, maybe not so altruistic stuff and some kind of, you know, very science fiction, futuristic stuff about how we, we can fundamentally manipulate people's ways of thinking yeah. about well, maybe, others. Maybe we could manipulate it so that uh, kids would find science more interesting in schools. Yeah, well, you know, and, manipulation uh, for, yeah. for, for, for good, good, for good yeah. not for evil. Well, it could happen. Right, we are going to take a break for some music and when we come back, we will be speaking to our first uh, guest for today from Austin Health and no doubt we'll be talking about immunology because um, that's what the show is going to be about today. It doesn't hurt me. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and GoGo on 3RRR. On the line with us now is Associate Professor Jason Tribiano, who is the Head of Infectious Diseases Department at Austin Health. Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's good to talk to you. This is all part of our uh, Day of Immunology coming up. Uh, I understand you're giving a talk at one of the events, I think. Um, When is that? Uh, it's Friday, Friday evening at the Doherty. Uh, it's a chance to give a public lecture on immunology. Um, so I think I was hearing you guys earlier. Everybody knows what immunology is now. <laughs> I feel like people actually know my both my jobs. I'm what an ID physician and uh, the immunology one. It's great. Yeah, did you? I mean, what, what happened there is being an, an infectious diseases physician, all of a sudden, you know, as I say, it's like, um, you know, when the Brisbane floods occurred, if you were a, a hydrologist, you just suddenly became a rock star overnight. Is that, is that yeah. how it felt? Did you suddenly, or, or are you just like, holy crap, this is, this is more than we can handle? Like, what a, bit was it like? Of, a bit of both, but probably more holy crap. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we're doing things we've never done before and spotlight and all these kind of things. It was, it was an unusual experience, but it's nice to be doing. Uh, business as usual work now again. That's uh, good. Good to hear. Now, in in terms of your work, though, you work in an area which um, I think a lot of people probably won't have heard of. But it's the idea that some people respond very badly to antibiotics. In fact, that so they actually have an allergic reaction. I understand to antibiotics themselves. Tell us how that works. Yeah, so I, I kind of look after two ends of the spectrum. We've got the people that had a reported allergy to a penicillin, and the common one is. Somebody says, I'm allergic in childhood to penicillin. Yep. And that may or may not have been a true immunological reaction. Either way, when they grow up, the chances they've lost that reaction. And so people may carry that allergy into adulthood, and it really affects what antibiotic they can have, their treatment outcomes. So a lot of our work is dispelling that myth and trying to remove or delabel that allergy in childhood. And the other extreme is the true allergy is the ones that, you know, the body has decided either by their antibodies or their white cells to make an extreme reaction, the, the antibodies being anaphylaxis and the white blood cells or the T cell. 
a group of conditions called severe cutaneous adverse reactions or SCAR. And these are devastating illnesses uh, where a single antibiotic can end up somebody in ICU for months on end. So there's really two real big ends of the spectrum when we're talking about antibiotic allergy. Mm. And why is it that a person would sort of grow out of being allergic to something like, like say, penicillin? I mean, what, what happens? Is it during their adolescence or when they become an adult? What, what's going on there that you just yeah. suddenly becomes okay? Well, the truth is the first part is maybe they were never allergic in the first place. Okay. So we're cheating by saying they've grown out. You know, they had a viral infection that caused the rash. An antibiotic was given at the same time. Coincidental that the antibiotic got blamed, you know, caught in the crossfire. The other way is that they just lose that antibody response predominantly or that T cell response over time. And we know that 50% of people after five years and 80% of people after 10 years will lose that response. And that's historical data. So we've replicated that in the modern era with the same thing with our patients. And you test them over time and they lose it and they lose that ability to make an immune response. So once allergic, never you know. Once allergic, always allergic is wrong. Mm, interesting. And if if you do have a patient that comes in, you know, with with one of these allergies, it's a real allergy. You know, as you say, like yeah, it's a actually, real one. Yeah. actually happening. Um, I mean, what's what's the process there? How do you actually deal with whatever that patient's going through? Because we often hear about you know antibiotic resistant bugs and so forth, and that's a yeah. huge issue. We don't hear about this as much, but it sounds to me like it's you know equally problematic or, or probably more widespread? Yeah, I think it is. You know, you've got probably one in five patients that get admitted to hospital carry one of these. And if you do have one, well, then, like you're saying, the choice of antibiotics is really restricted. And in an era where we're not making antibiotics, the antibiotic pipeline is still dwindling. We're making antivirals for COVID, we're not making antibiotics. Um, we really need to use them wisely. So it's become a kind of a weapon of antimicrobial resistance. You know, so attacking antibiotic allergies is a stewardship weapon so if somebody comes in the first thing is it's a true allergy it doesn't mean they have, can't take all the antibiotics in that class so one of the things we have realized is you may be allergic to penicillin but you're able to take a second cousin called a cephalosporin and so a patient may have anaphylaxis true allergy come and see us in clinic we do skin testing find they're allergic to the penicillin but say take the cousin cephalosporin and that opens up the antibiotic window significantly for them and they can still take restricted antibiotics, and they're not contributing to the concept of antimicrobial resistance. So um, there's really pathways forward, even in those that are truly allergic. Yeah, it's it's, it's fascinating. I know um, just looking at some of the, the work that's been done with regards to various allergies over the last sort of decade or two, especially out of the Royal Children's Hospital there in Melbourne and the, the Murdoch yeah. Children's Research Institute, you know, I mean, peanut allergies and things now are, you know, really becoming more far more manageable than they, they once were. Yeah. Are there similar processes to address these allergic reactions with things like antibiotics? I mean, is there a way, can, yeah. I, can I take a little bit each day until I'm okay or like, what's the deal? Well, well there is ways to do that. You know, the, the idea of tolerance or treating through is possible. A desensitization, which is tricking the immune system by taking small amounts over a period of time. These are historical things that we still do in practice. But I think for the, when we're talking about the low risk allergies where you've had them historically, the best way is to challenge and remove it because we know 97% of people are negative on the challenge or test. So somebody, if you are carrying a, a penicillin allergy into adulthood from childhood, you should get rid of that, and that's with a challenge through a you know, supervised challenge procedure. So that's the bulk of our work. The problem is the forgotten area is this SCAR group, these, you know, these T-cell reactions, these white cell reactions. 
you know, the mortality could be upwards of 25%, but really is a rare and forgotten disease. So if you talk to somebody that's had Stephen Johnson syndrome with do an antibiotic or a drug, you know, it is a very, very bad reaction, but we don't have the same tools for them. We don't have the easy or easy skin test. Um, we really need to progress the science and understand those better to progress the way we manage and diagnose them. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. With, with regards to antibiotics, uh, you know, one of the things that I've always been fascinated about is just how, in, in a sense, how little we know about them because, you know, they're often very complex molecules that we've found somewhere in the natural world. Yeah. And yeah. so we're not we're not per se designing them from scratch like we do with many other pharmaceutical products that we have. How, how much is sort of that impeding this work? Like the the lack of knowledge of how huge. they actually function. Yeah, it's huge. We almost need to go back to basics again because you know the way the molecule is digested, processed, and then attaching to parts of our immune system, we still don't understand that process. And the breakdown products, the metabolites, all these components of antibiotics, we're learning on the go. You know, I used to think you could be allergic to only one antibiotic, but we found now that some of those antibiotics are able to combine into a mega antigen, and then you can be have an immune response and be positive to both of those on the skin. And if you asked me that five years ago, so that's rubbish. You know, tell them to go and repeat the test. It's wrong. So we really almost need to go back and back and get it back to the mass spec, back to the way we analyze these from the very beginning, yeah. Mm. And with all the new changes to, you know, the way we can do genetic sequencing and various things, you know, we've got yep. CRISPR on the doorstep now, you know, it seems like yep. we can do all sorts of things. Are there, are there avenues for resolving this from, from sort of that direction of sort of working out, you know, okay, these are, these are the particular genes I have that are causing this, um, they can maybe be modified. Is that a pathway? 100%. I think it's more to do with those T-cell or SCARAD reactions, you know, when I retire, I hope the day comes where you get admitted to hospital, you have a genetic test performed that tells you you are unable to have X, Y, and Z uh, as prevention. We've got a lovely roadmap, you know, some of the HIV antiviral drugs, one called Abacavir, was beautifully done where they found the HLA associated with that. It's a common screening test. So I think for us, before going to probably CRISPR, um, really going back to basic HLA work is probably the key thing as a preventative tool. Because most of these severe reactions are going to be HLA restricted um, in terms of a genetic predisposition. So that's the way forward for me. I think we've, we've got clear evidence of works for anti-epileptics, antiretrovirals. We've just got to find it for antibiotics. Yeah. And Jason, just before I let you go, one of the things I've always been curious about is, you know, whenever I've turned up to a hospital or, you know, emergency room and, you know, hopefully not see someone like yourself, because, you know, it's simpler stuff. Nobody wants to see us. Uh, we don't want to see you guys. Um, but, you know, you get to that st stage where someone at some point says, are you allergic to anything? Yeah. How does this play out when the person turning up is unconscious? Like, what's the process there with things like, there's so many things that you could potentially check for. How does that work? Yeah, it's a blind spot, isn't it? It's a blind spot of the health system. You know, maybe controversial, the My Health Record is one way in which we can correct that. You know, it's been put in by the GP, there's some information. When they see us in clinic, if they've had a reaction, we put that pretty much everywhere and a patient carries a card. So it takes away the problem of the history only. But we are operating blind a lot of the times. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the, we get out of jail because the vast majority of people, even if they are reporting an antibiotic allergy, They've either outgrown it or it's false. And so we're talking about a very small minority that even if we did re-challenge them, we would have problems. 
there's probably more luck than anything. Yep. Oh, look, it sounds like you guys are on top of things there. Jason, thanks so much for chatting to us. Good luck with your public lecture at the end of the week. Uh, we are going to be talking a bit more about that with uh, someone a little bit later in the show. Um, but, you know, at least you don't have to go through those steps of saying, hey, you know, I know something about immunology. Have you ever heard of that? And the audience sort of yeah. goes, what, what? You know, at least there's some uh, recognition there which should be helpful for you. That's great. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me, Shane. Thanks so much. Folks, that was Associate Professor Jason Tribbiano, who is the Head of Infectious Diseases Department at Austin Health. We're going to take a break for some important station announcements, and we'll be back with our next guest in just a moment. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. Uh, welcome back, folks. You are on Triple R. On the line with us now is Dr. Kirsten Fairfax. Kirsten is from the Menzies Institute for Medical Research at the University of Tasmania. Can you hear us, Kirsten? I can hear you, Shane. Hello. How's it going down there in Tasmania? All well? It is well. It is well. We've had a bit of a uh, cold snap, as I think you have in Victoria as well, but we got some uh, snow on the mountain the other day, first time for the year, so... Um Snow. That was uh, that was exciting. That's outrageous. We haven't had any of that here in Victoria, as far as I know. I I, I could be wrong. There could be some up high, but uh, lovely place down there that you live in. Um, are you are you in the new building in the city there? The nice new building. I am actually. We have a we have a fabulous building there, which has um, this very sort of interesting contour pattern mm. on the um, on the external facade, and um, and if anyone ever in Hobart and interested, the bottom section of the building is actually open uh, in non-COVID times to have a look and you can see some of the archaeological remains of Hobart that they discovered when they were sort of digging for the footings of the building. So it's, it's quite interesting, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, gave, I gave a talk there right before everything you know hit the fan and uh, I was very impressed with that building. I thought it was a beautiful place, a really good coffee shop on the opposing corner, as I recall, too. <laughs> Not sure yes. if that's still. Hopefully, that survived. Now, Kirsten, um, we've got you on as part of the uh, the Day of Immunology celebrations coming up. I understand you're giving a talk too. Tell us about um, that one. Yeah, yeah. So we've got a public talk, and we're going to um, just cover it. So this year, we're talking about all things autoimmunity, and uh, so we've got uh, three speakers. So I think you've just heard from Jason. So he's yep. one of our. Speakers and I'll I'll give us um, give us more uh, sort of talk about autoimmunity and bone marrow failure syndrome, which is what I study. Yep. And um, and then we'll also have a talk from Associate Professor Fern Hoey. So should be a great uh, a great session on Friday night there at the at the Peter McCallum. So yes, sounds great. Now um, before we get on to your work on bone marrow. Failure syndrome. Give us a little bit of a rundown of what you mean by autoimmunity. I was just saying to Jason, I think the word immunology and immunity people are sort of a bit across now, but what do we mean by autoimmunity? Yeah, absolutely. So autoimmunity is um, is really sort of explained in the in the term. So auto um, being being self and immunity. So it's it's when we have uh, the immune system is actually attacking its own self. So um, if you like, the, the immune system has to go through a bit of an education process. So all those little um, cells that, we've, that we um, have in our, our body have basically had to go to school um, where, they, where they grew up before they get sent out into the rest of the body. 
And um, ordinarily, in a, in a person who doesn't have autoimmunity, what happens is that anything that might recognise something that is actually a part of themselves would get, uh, would get immediately killed. So, so it's a pretty ruthless tool. Uh, but um, what happens uh, when people have autoimmunity is, unfortunately, that school uh, isn't, isn't top-notch. And, um, and some of those uh, cells which actually are able to respond to uh, things that are present in the body, they, uh, they don't get killed. They are able to escape and they go out into um, the rest of the body and, and they start to wreak havoc. And in terms of you know what what well, in terms of these um, conditions, and we talk about autoimmune diseases a lot. What what sort of things can we do to switch that off? Because I mean, the last thing we want to do is switch our immune system off, right? Yeah, absolutely, Shane. And as everybody I think has has really appreciated over the last uh, couple of years, the immune system is really really important for being able to respond to viral infections, and so. Um, we know that COVID-19 is a, is a viral infection that we need to be able to, um, you know, to develop an adequate response to. But as you say, we really don't want to have um, our body starting to attack its own, its own system and, and getting that balance right so that you're able to get rid of things that um, you, that you um, don't want. So either viral infections or, you know, we actually live in a world that's full of microorganisms. As mm. you walk through the world, you'll be encountering fungal spores, you'll be encountering bacteria, you'll be encountering viruses. Uh, and we really need our body to be able to protect us from all those things. And we have obviously our our skin is a, is a really good um, way of stopping things getting in. So our skin's um, got these amazing sort of oily substances on the surface that stop microorganisms getting in and, and then, it, um, you know, beyond those physical barriers, we've got things like coughing, which kind of protect those um, mucus surfaces. Um, and, and then obviously should, uh, should we have some invaders that get past all those systems, then we've got the immune system on the inside of the body. And, mm. and that's really important for not only getting rid of those microorganisms, but also getting rid of um, cancerous cells. Yeah, and so yeah. we really need that to work properly. Um, but what we don't want is it start attacking its own self. So it's a really um, fine, sort of balancing line. And and to be honest, the things that we can do are really um, are really very simple. We we need to get enough sleep. We need to eat healthily. We need to do adequate exercise. Um, and 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 beyond those things, uh, we need to be a little bit lucky and not have a genetic uh, problem that's that's sort of there underlying our our makeup yeah so now let's talk about bone marrow failure syndrome i'm assuming this is in this sort of category of um of you know immune errors or immune problems tell us what that particular syndrome is about yeah absolutely thanks shane so so bone marrow failure syndrome it's actually a really rare condition um at, but Tragically, it, it affects uh, quite a lot of young. Um, so the majority of people that it affects are, are quite young, so um, small children and, and young adults alike. And they're um, both genetic causes and um, acquired causes. And one of the sort of major um, types of bone marrow failure syndrome is called aplastic anemia. Um, and uh, very tragically, there are um, 
a couple of families who've been affected by this. Um, so Maddie Revolt and Alex Godonsky are two young adults who um, very tragically succumbed to, to this disease and then their families have kind of turned that around to make it something really positive and gone out and, and fundraised um, and and um, as a consequence, we've been able to create this great sort of community um, who, are, who are all working together to try to come up with uh, sort of new models of bone marrow failure syndrome and, and ways to um, to try to treat um, patients who have bone marrow failure syndrome. Mm. And um, and so basically, what it is is your bone marrow is the place where it's basically like the factory that makes all the cells that then go out into the blood. And those cells are not only those immune cells that we've just been talking about, so those, those B and T cells. So your T cells are your, your cells that really, um, they're like the soldiers of the immune system. They're out there with their swords attacking any cell that gets invaded. Um, your B cells make all the antibody that protects the spaces in the body. Um, so those are one thing that the bone marrow makes that goes out into the blood. But the bone marrow also makes all the red blood cells that carry the oxygen. Yep. And, and all the platelets, which are able to actually make a clot if you if you cut yourself. So what happens in bone marrow failure syndrome is that those stem cells in the bone marrow don't do their job properly anymore. So they're not able to make all those cells that go out into the blood properly anymore. And one of the causes of that is um, is actually those stem cells being attacked uh, by the cell so that that autoimmune process where those stem cells are the things that are getting attacked. So, for example, in, in type 1 diabetes, what we see is the pancreatic islet cells that make the insulin are the things that are getting attacked. Mm. But in bone marrow failure syndrome, what we see is the stem cells within the bone marrow are the things that are getting attacked. And when those cells don't make things properly, we, we, um, we either end up with anemia where, you know, if you don't have... Um, an adequate source of red blood cells, you become really fatigued and breathless and um, you you bruise um, very easily. Um, and, you know, so you end up in real trouble when those stem cells in the bone marrow aren't, aren't working properly. Yeah. Well, Kirsten, it's, it's, it's fascinating hearing about that. And, you know, every time we hear about the complexities of the immune system in a good sense, there are often similar stories like this one where the, those complexities go against us in certain circumstances. And although rare, um, the impact on the people with these conditions is incredibly debilitating and sometimes even fatal. Good luck with the ongoing work, Kirsten. Uh, thanks so much for chatting to us today. And I hope you have a great time talking to the public about this stuff on Friday. Thank you so much, Shane. Thank you, and uh, I hope you uh, have a have a really great rest of your show. We enjoy tuning in down in down in Taz, and uh, and and really uh, enjoy the work that you do promoting science. So thanks, thanks so much, and thanks for giving us the opportunity to chat to you about what we do. Thanks so much, Kirsten. It's our pleasure, and I had no idea our transmitter was that strong. Good to hear that it's getting all the way down there to Tasmania, folks. That was Dr. Kirsten Fairfax, um, who is down in the Menzies Institute for Medical Research, an amazing building if you get down there in Hobart. Go and have a look at it. I was um, I was quite stunned. It kind of just appeared around the corner. I was like, where, who built this and when? It looks extraordinary. Um, at the University of Tasmania. So some incredible facilities down there as part of that university, which we don't get a lot of guests from. Um, we should get more. Um, but anyway, all good. Uh, we're going to take a break for some important station announcements, and Dr. Laura is going to have something for us when we come back, I hope.
Is that? Yeah. Yeah, she's looking like she does. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. And we're back. Almost caught me off guard there for a second. Dr. Laura's, you know. The chat. Something I just wanted to talk about was gender bias in medical research, but not what you're thinking, because usually when we talk about this, we talk about the fact that females are underrepresented in being higher levels, funding, et cetera, et cetera. But what I want to talk to you about today is um, the gender bias in clinical trials. Ah. And so clinical trials are used to determine whether new therapies are going to be safe and going to be effective. But historically, um, a lot of these um, clinical trials are really performed in in men, right? And there's huge um, issues with that, given that, you know, men and females are different, you know. Um, you, really? Really. Not just physiologically and biologically, hormonally. There are many different ways in which um, males and females can present differently with different diseases and how they can respond differently. And um, just to give you some kind of examples of that, we were just talking about autoimmunity with Kirsten. Mm. And autoimmunity predominantly affects females as opposed to men. Um, Just some stats here. um, that Females are three times more likely to present with rheumatoid arthritis, four times more likely to present with multiple sclerosis, Two out of three Alzheimer's patients are females as opposed to males. Also, um, the way females present um, to heart disease is different. There are different symptoms. And actually, what this has led to is um, a misdiagnosis in heart disease in females, resulting in being um, diagnosed approximately seven to ten years later than males. Okay. Wow. As in, as in, Years not just just being not aware that they have yeah, serious I mean, heart conditions. And of course, there could be coming back to your story, Ellie, an unconscious bias of when women do present with things. You know, is it that female hysteria again? Um, you know, hysteria. Hysteria. You know, yeah. women are they're hysterical. They're distracting as well. well they were in the late eighteen hundreds, yeah, right? There's a lot of hysteria. <laughs> and the moon. There was yes. the moon was around That's all the right. time, That's every right. month. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know. Crazy. Luna. Crazy. Um, There's a lot of uh, different hormonal changes, which results in a different immune presentation in females. So females will typically present, and it's been known for a long time, with heightened innate immune responses and antibody responses. We probably Mm. had better responses to the COVID-19 vaccination. So if females in your life were moaning about, you know, the response after their booster shot, it's probably because they've got a better immune response than you. And that's because our hormones, such as estrogen, are immune stimulatory, whereas androgens, which are more present in males, are more immunosuppressive. Yeah. Not just hormones, but there's also genetic factors. There was a gene that was up in in the sort of literature and news a little while ago called um, KDM6A. It's an X-linked gene. So it's you're going to have two copies if you're a woman, one if you're a man. And it was linked um, with multiple sclerosis, whereby in animal studies, if you knocked out this gene, um, you could. it was pretty much curative of the disease. So wow. there's genetic factors, there's hormonal factors. And so when you think of all these historical clinical trials being conducted in men, this has led to a lot of issues. And just to um, recap some of those, um, there's... If we look at some of the stats, more than eight, to, these are quite shocking actually, more than eight to 10 drugs have been removed from the US market during 1997 to 2000 due to side effects that have predominantly been in women. And then later than that, 2004 to 2013, more than 2 million drug-related adverse effects in women versus 1.3 in men. Now, reasons as to why women have potentially not been in clinical trials is it's thought that their menstrual cycle, the hormones will, you know, 
sort of present, will, will confound the results. But also, of course, we were massively set back, apart from female hysteria, which might confound results. But during the um, thalidomide scandal back in the 1960s, mm. when drugs that were tested in women um, led to numerous birth defects. But last week, so we've been trying to, you know, confound this. To, so, you know, lots of different approvals have been, been brought in that... Um, both gender and race, and race is a whole different issue as well in how different yep. populations respond to various drugs. There needs to be enforcement into, you know, the representation in can, various can, trials. Can I ask a sort of related question? Because, yeah. you know, when, when we talk Not about... Not I know that much, but <laughs> please. You know, you're, you're the expert here. Um, when we talk about drug trials and so forth, I mean, all of these things start off in many, well, in almost all cases, in rodent models. And my understanding is the majority of those are in male... Mice models. Is that true? Yeah, it's true. So that, I mean, that in itself yeah. is a problem from the very early stages of research. Well, absolutely. So even in these preclinical, you know, mouse studies, um, particularly in neuro neuroimmunology or neurobiology, it's potentially it's largely male mice that are used. It's because you want to keep your results, you know standardized in a way so you don't want to introduce those changes when you're looking at for example the function of a gene but we know now there are such huge differences and sort of in the past sort of you know five to ten years there's now been a huge flurry of studies of reporting sex specific differences i mean for example in my research in immunology we only use female mice actually and that's largely because we work on the skin for example and male mice fight so <laughs> there's <laughs> do they yes so if you <laughs> Just, you know if you look beyond the fur, their skin is really really thick and scratched because they fight in their cages. Whereas um, female mice are just, just get along. They get along. They're lovely about it. And so to get around the inflammation in the skin, we work on female mice. But of course, working on the same sex is incredibly problematic. Um, even though there are all these guidelines now that you must you know take this into consideration, animal models, clinical trials. There's still huge issues, and that's sort of what got me thinking about this because last week there was a study published in the. Lancet Regional Health. They analysed more than 20,000 clinical trials the year 2000 to 2020. So we're not talking the olden days. Not the and, 1960s, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we're talking yeah. like in the past 20 years. Yeah. And only 43% um, of all clinical trials are actually um, highlighting their, you know, gender, race, ethnic data. So, Ellie. so in that sense, you're talking about mice, right, and fighting male mice and things. And you, you said before that, you know, it was kind of thought, you know, women's menstrual cycles and things maybe would taint results or whatever. Is there anything legitimate these days that that really there is a good reason or not for doing clinical trials, uh, not necessarily... Uh, without women, for example, but, you know, maybe segregating the clinical trials, doing them in men, doing them in women or something. I mean, is there is that or is it just complete BS, quite frankly, and people should be doing should be doing, um, you know, these trials? Yeah, I mean, there has to be an enrolment of 50-50. I yeah. mean, surely if people are in different um, sort of stages of their menstrual cycle, there probably will be hormonal differences. That's true. But don't but, you want that to be represented? But you want that to be represented because, of course, now mm. you come up with, you know, all the um, – imagine all the wastage of medical research funding if you're then retracting, coming back to that state of um, eight out of ten drugs were actually retracted after having gone into the public because of the side effects that were not known about. That's absolutely yeah, You would have criminal. known about if you'd done that. I mean, the, the other thing too is that, you know, like, and I can't speak for everyone in this room, but I know I do not have a uterus. Really? Right, yeah. I mean, yeah. surprise, surprise. There but, are these differences. But, but, like, but like, so there will be drugs that are specific to, to, you know, someone who has a uterus and who has ovaries 
that, you know, I mean, presumably there is a pathway there that involves testing with the right, you know, the right individuals. Because yeah. if you, you know, I mean, how does that work? I mean, if all that, you know, like, and, and it's all done on mouse models that are, that are male, you know, and I, and I know until, you know, relatively recently, um, no one thought that any mice menstruated, right? I mean, that's a recent change. So, you know, we we sort of know now that there are there are mice that menstruate. So there's a whole other things you can do. Well, yeah, we can put mice on the pill now to stop that. Keep things steady. And I'm Is not joking. Right? Yeah, you give them a injection to put them on the contraceptive pill, wow. which keeps things in, in cycle to keep things steady for your experiments. Wow. But see, that comes back to that. I mean, do you want to do that? Yeah, though? Yeah, because yeah, you're trying a, to replicate, yeah. you know, you're trying real to replicate real-world environments. Real world yeah. environments. I, I'm, I mean, I know some people do yeah. have injections to stop periods, but... Yeah, of course. A lot of us don't. <laughs> it does depend on the, you know, the study. If you're looking at yeah, certain, yeah. you know, it's very um, reductionist. Yes, you know, yes. I can only speak for immunology. But, of yeah. course, this needs to be taken into account. And um, and there's a lot of trials now using machine learning algorithms to backtrack, backtrack through old clinical data to try and predict mm. how women will respond to certain drugs. But, yeah, it's it's not enough. Uh, and, and of course, stuff. race, completely different mm. question as well mm. with the race well, bias in clinical I think there's trials. a lot of things there that we need to get right. Well, uh Big things happening. Dr. Laura, lovely to see you in the studio. Pleasure to have you. See you at the Doherty Institute next week. Are you doing the tours personally? No, but I'll be around. You'll be around. I'll just be okay. chilling. Yeah, be yeah. chilling. And Dr. Ailey, great to have you in the studio. So exciting to be here. How today. long? I know it's been. I think it's been, it's been a, like a year. Getting, or well, two and a half years. Two, I think. Yeah. Jesus. I know. Oh no, maybe I was in once for a radiothon or something. I can't yeah. remember. A while. Good to have everything's you back. a blur. The last two years. <laughs> Good to have you back, <laughs> folks. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. Have a great Sunday, and we'll chat to you with some more science again on Einstein and Go Go. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.